Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut while we traipse merrily through the week's IT news. We've got new security products from VMware and Juniper, a big find for IBM, and more IT conversation. We're sponsored today in part by Nokia and its Digital Sandbox. Part of Nokia's Fabric Services system software, the Digital Sandbox, helps enable a continuous integration, continuous delivery framework for network engineers. You can find out more by listening to the Tech Bytes podcast published May 31st, 2022, and go yeah. to nokia.ly/data-center-fabric. Just a word on that. That is the digital sandbox is actually a full environment. It's a full copy of your network. And and you can actually do operations on it. So it's actually a lab, a proof of concept of, and it's an exact 100% copy of your network. So it's really worth diving into this. If you're somebody who's putting in mission critical changes, here's a way to step up the way you work by putting up, you know, working out changes on not just the configuration, but the whole running state of the actual network. So you can actually inject BGP routes and watch them propagate and all this sort of stuff. Amazing stuff. Well worth a look. Yeah, check it out. One more sponsor item today. Uh, we have a Tech Bytes podcast at the end of the show. We're talking about network as a service with Aruba. They're the sponsor. They're a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company. We're going to talk about how Aruba defines network as a service, the market appetite for network as a service, customer examples, and more. And last but not least, if you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and Heavy Strategy. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's dive right into the news. VMware has announced Contexa. This is a cloud-based threat intelligence products pulling in security feeds from other VMware products, including NSX and Carbon Black. And Greg, you got the briefing on this one. Yeah, I, I was in a, in a briefing with VMware without talking about this product. It's I would have thought they would have held this out for VMworld, which I don't think is this week, is it? No, I think that's in August, uh, but I guess RSA yeah, is so, coming up. So, Yeah, so it's an interesting one in the sense that I would have, it's, it's an out of, uh, rhythm announcement in that sense, but we've also seen the Broadcom acquisition. So I wonder <laughs> if, you know, if there's some sort of business purpose or strategic goals here to keep products rolling out to show that we're not. But anyway, that's all too soon. It, I think this product's just ready to release. They want to get it into the market and see if cut. So the, basically, how this works is that it takes all of the uh, telemetry data that VMware's got access to across ESX hosts, across the NSX, across the RV networks load balancers, across the carbon black, all that sort of stuff, and collects that data in the cloud. And then they do a bunch of analysis across that data and then turn that into threat intelligence. So they're starting to locate threats to your system, You know, gaining information about, is there something inside? Is there lateral movement? Is there a penetration into the infrastructure? And I guess this makes sense in the way that VMware is really well positioned to have good data here. This isn't perimeter data. This is data right inside. I remember ESX, there's a, a security technology that VMware acquired that actually monitors the systems running inside the VM, the ESX hypervisor. So they can mm -hmm. monitor the Linux kernel, they can monitor the Windows and kernels and so forth, and actually use that to apply security. So it's it's much different from what I you originally think about. Yeah, so that was my uh, impression based on the not too helpful press release uh, and white paper that they released. <laughs> I would have liked more context <laughs> about Contexa. Um, yeah. but that's always the case, I think. But it does sound like it's essentially, yes, a, a kind of, because they have so many point products, you know, Carbon Black is at the endpoint, NSX is your data center network, and they've got, you know, security controls and distributed firewalls and stuff they, they can just put out throughout your network using mm -hmm. NSX and other uh, information points, they can suck it all up and do a lot of analytics on top of it. Kind of like, I guess, a seam, but even better somehow. Yeah. Well, I think it sort of proves this idea that if you can get enough uh, telemetry data or logging data, 
from a system, then it's not too hard to actually build a threat intelligence system. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing here is that a lot of companies who have built platforms over the last, you know, two decades, you know, uh, that actually control a significant amount of infrastructure can now just feed that into some sort of collect that telemetry, feed it into an analytics engine, and then apply some deep learning or machine learning or statistical regression right. and build up a threat model. And, you know, in this case, the source product here was actually through a private acquisition of a German, an unnamed German company. I did ask that question. But strategically, this isn't a revolutionary product. It's an inner, it's a what I would see as an incremental. That is, you know, VMware already has access to all the telemetry that's in its systems nominally. Uh, what it's doing now is just shipping it all off into the cloud and then performing some analysis and then selling the threat intelligence information back to customers. Right. And they say there's also, I guess, a 500-person threat analytics team that I suppose will be looking at sort of global data from all of its customers to look for mm. identified trends and and potentially, I guess, flag up warnings for folks is, is my assumption about that. Yeah, that's right. So not only does it, I, I imagine they're buying some threat intelligence feeds, but the presentation also talks about creating threat intelligence. So they'll be analyzing the logs, looking for unusual patterns to actually generate threat intelligence data that would be unique to VMware, but that would also be specific to VMware because the source data defines the threat intelligence that you have. So you might end up with an interesting situation where VMware is able to sell that threat intelligence to other companies and build a revenue stream. You know, obviously that's not anything that they talked about. That's me projecting onto the, <laughs> onto the business operations, but sure. that would be a, a potential thing. The question that I have is, is this product limited to VMware products? And it apparently, as best as I can tell, it is. And that, of course, leaves, if you're a security professional, gaps in other parts of your model, right? So what about your database services? What about your you know, web service that doesn't bring you anything into this? So um, although it's able to monitor certain parts, I wonder where the gap is here. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That was exactly the question I had. There are a lot, mm -hmm. you know, I may I may be all in on, uh, you know, the full VMware suite, but I probably still have firewalls and load balancers and IDSs and IPSs elsewhere that it would be great to get that in. And it sounds like at this point, it's just VMware products. Maybe they'll expand it mm -hmm. over time because obviously having kind of a global security view does make sense if you've got good analytics capabilities and you can actually generate useful information and not just even more mm. alarms, then yes, you've got, I think, a compelling product. The question is, have they met that criteria? Yeah. They talk about it in different places. It's a little bit vague. So I suspect the product's very early to market, may mm -hmm. not actually be ready for the prime time, perhaps even. it's not. That's not clear from the press release and from the briefing that I saw. In I mean, there is the potential here for this product to replace many other products because it's drawing on telemetry from you potentially, if you've got NSX, you can draw all the telemetry, the flow data mm -hmm. in the networks. If you're in your load balances are in the VMware suite, then you've got access to that. If you're using the security products from VMware, then you've got all the telemetry data. So it's one of these things where um, if you're already deep in the VMware system, this product could potentially replace others yep. in your suite because it's got potentially access to data and if their threat intelligence engine is able to, you know, be broad enough and say, oh, I can I can analyze load balancer data and NSX data and CPU data and container data. And you know what I mean? Like there's so many points right, here. Right. That's quite a big ask to say we've got a world-class threat research. That's that's uh, okay. Yeah. So I I think it makes total sense for VMware to go into this because they have so many information points that they can be monitoring. The question is execution. Mm -hmm. And I guess we'll give it some time to bake and, and see what shakes out. Yes. All right, moving on, but sticking with security, Juniper Networks is adding two new features to its cloud-based security service. They include a cloud access security broker, or CASB, and data loss prevention, or DLP. 
These new features are going to join Firewall as a service and Secure Web Gateway. It's all part of Juniper's Secure Edge offering, which is playing in the SASE or Secure Access Services Edge space. And I apologize for throwing so many acronyms at you in one paragraph. <laughs> I'm sure it's not SSE. I mean, I, I've read plenty of marketing stuff saying SASE's over. It's SSE, Secure right. Services. I'm like, oh, and then ZTNA is going to replace it all. So hang on to your hats. Yeah. Folks. <laughs> yeah. I think the main feature here is that this idea of a CASB DLP, uh, you know, you send your data off into the cloud and the cloud does something mystic to it. And that gives you log data and uh, the ability to see what users are doing inside of your network has become basically a standard feature for SD-WAN companies. Now, a lot of SD-WAN companies are actually using third parties. So they're sending it off to Cloudflare or to Zscaler. Right. And I think what's actually happening is we're seeing those companies who were originally just off-prem cloud moving out to the edge as well. So Cloudflare in particular now takes the data directly from MDMs, directly from your browser. You configure your proxy, it sends, uh -huh. gets uh -huh. sent to Cloudflare. And you know lots of other ways to get the data into Cloudflare. So all of a sudden, Cloudflare is starting to attack SD-WAN providers, right? Right. it's just all done <laughs> on the internet. And if you start doing, and I believe Cloudflare is starting to do VPN engines and so forth as well. So if that's the case, well, then you're probably getting to the point where the market is transitioning. And if you're a SASE company, you've realized that your competitors have now, sorry, your third-party integrations are now actually becoming competitors as the market converges. And so you need a CASB and you need a DLP so that your customers aren't being <laughs> pitched to your enemies, right? in effect, or to your primary competitors. And so that's what I, I see this as. Does that make logical sense to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Juniper could very clearly read the tea leaves and see so many. Palo Alto Networks, I think, has been one of the big ones, Cato Networks and others in driving this whole cloud-based, cloud-delivered security services where you essentially direct traffic into a pop. It does a variety of security controls on it and then shoots it along to its destination. Now Juniper wants to get in on the act. Uh, they started this in May 2021, and they've been rolling out new capabilities ever since. It basically just started off as a managed firewall service, but now they're um, bringing it up to par with what you would expect from a secure access services edge uh, full-fledged deployment. So it can't be very hard, right? It mustn't be very hard to build a CASB DLP platform <laughs> of a you know medium level. It's obviously not going to compete with some of the bigger solutions that have had years to mature, but... It's not that hard. Like if I look back at Cisco, for example, they spent billions of buying companies, uh, you know, like Umbrella and DNS companies and things like that to get this type of service together. And yet today it seems like Cisco, you know, Juniper's been able to say, oh, we've got a security BU. We could basically build our own <laughs> off the back of that. And it's like a year later, boom, there you are. There's a, you know, there's an entry point into the CASB market and you know, they'll have a few years to grow it, but you know, that's where we're at. Right. And they, they will have, and they've also got some of the other pieces in place, like an SD-WAN offering from their 128 technology acquisition, which can help drive that traffic in there. And they've got a VPN client uh, to get endpoints in there. So they're, they're building all the pieces out. I, I wonder though, one of the key elements of this whole SASE service is having those pops. I'm curious about what Juniper's footprint looks like in terms of those pops, because that makes a difference when you're looking at one of these solutions, particularly if you're a global company. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously scaling out your network infrastructure, but uh, that'll depend on how many customers they get. But then again, Juniper's very flush with cash right now, struggling. You know, we talked about supply chain problems. This is software in and hosted on public cloud infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So they could scale out fairly rapidly. I'd hopefully they've got some sort of deployment, you know, in the era of software defined infrastructure. I'm sure it's all in containers sitting in the cloud, blah, blah, blah. So uh, quite reasonable to question, but no reason to believe it's a hurdle to my mind, perhaps. Well, it's just one of those things that I think takes time mm -hmm. to ramp up. Uh, so you may yeah, want to yeah, talk to them okay. about their roadmap, you know, if you're a global company. 
in theory, it's just containers on somebody else's infrastructure somewhere. So I'm sure. Not, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Of course, the difference between theory and practice is something <laughs> 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 you can always go wrong. Yeah. All right. Link in the show notes. If you want to read uh, more, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, Greg, you, you know, we often talk about the return of campus networking as a growth target for the major networking vendors. And now Morgan Stanley has a research note essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. So we often come up with statements or sometimes it's me and sometimes it's Drew, but you know, we've been talking about the return of the enterprise campus for, I don't know, a couple of years now, I think. Yep. And I've, I've always been looking for information to validate that or to deny that is true. And so to see this statement from Morgan Stanley this morning, and sometimes I see these things and I don't actually bring them onto the show. And I thought this time I would. Morgan Stanley published a research note, which indicated that competition for campus networking is key area for Arista, Juniper, HP, Aruba, and Extreme. But uh, what they're actually doing here is saying, that the rivals have predicted heady growth expectations in campus networking, amounting to 300 million of business per year. Mm-hmm. The catch is, is that Cisco doesn't tend to lose more than 100 basis points. What they're trying to say is it's a hell of a lot less than 300 million. <laughs> so either the market's got to grow substantially or Cisco's got to lose a lot of business. But what they also point out is that the campus businesses at Arista, Juniper, and Fortinet cumulatively <coughs> only amount to about 700 million in size today, <clears throat> with expectations to add about a billion in incremental revenue by 2024, greater than the share that's up to grabs by 250 to 500 million. Now, that's a good point in the sense that if you're going to take that business away from Cisco, that assumes that the campus networking market is finite. I actually believe the campus network is what Cisco identified several years ago, which said there's going to be a massive refresh of the campus Mm -hmm. because so much of the existing campus is just obsolete. It's just decades old technology. And there's a pent up sort of drive to end of life a lot of this old stuff and drive customers into new, which is what Cisco has been doing successfully for four or five years now and why it's been so successful in the campus lately. So I think there's a lot of pent up demand in there and customers have uh, are out shopping. And if somebody can put something on the table that's better than what Cisco's going offering, then customers are switching. Hence the success of HPE Aruba, for example, over the last few years. Right. And also I think Juniper with the, <clears throat> excuse me, the missed acquisition, because the wireless LAN, I think is one of those entry points where it's easier for a competitor to break in and say, hey, you know, we've got new mm. APs and they do XYZ. And by the way, while you're at it, you might want to get some faster access switches because mm-hmm. of the new speeds we're putting through the APs. Yeah, and I also think not all campuses want these high-intensity security-defined infrastructure solutions. Some of them just want to replace it, and a lot of those are actually switching out to very low-cost solutions, you know, uh, Ubiquity, Unify, those types of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Extreme, Mm -hmm. of course, is very big in this area. So it's reasonable to assume that there is this is quite a diverse market, much more complex than it used to be, which was always just like, you know, whatever, but also very much a wireless market. So the days of high priced expensive switches is less than it was and very much more focused towards even potentially private 5G in the future. So some people are talking about actually replacing Wi-Fi with private 5G. I'm not entirely convinced, but I think a university campus could run private 5G instead of Wi-Fi. And instead of having thousands, tens of thousands of Wi-Fi base stations all over the campus network, they could put up 10 or 20 5G base stations and have a completely different sort of way of approaching that remote connectivity. Interesting. Mm. That is very interesting. And there is potential. Now, this assumes that 5G works, right, and all the things. (laughs) Um, But potentially they could also then slice them and then the telcos that apply to their geo would then actually come on and host a slice inside of the 5G. So 
if you're uh, some of the campuses in America, classic, they have like 50,000 to 80,000 students on them. Right. You put up a bunch of base stations and then you say to the telcos, say to AT&T and Verizon, yes, you can come and use our, our base stations the way you go. And, you know, you can buy them from us because they, you know, it's one way of doing it. That's interesting because the university market, at least in the U.S., is a big, uh, it's very competitive for the traditional enterprise vendors, particularly in thinking Aruba, Juniper, Cisco, um, because you do need so many APs and students expect, ubiqu- uh, you know, Wi-Fi everywhere. Yeah. And so, yeah, to, to lose that to, to private 5G would be difficult for them. Why have why have Wi-Fi? Why not everybody these days has got <clears throat> smartphones and you know get the offload off the off the Wi-Fi, which has its own problems, right? I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to play out, but it is a possible outcome if if this is a big if if private 5G can get itself sorted out, and that's not <laughs> but, right. But we have talked about in previous episodes vendors moving into that 5G space, including Cisco, AWS, seeing an opportunity here to displace traditional Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah, there is. A, it's a very complex space. I mean, running a five G tower is not, you know, is so much more complicated than deploying a Wi Fi solution of any sort. And sustaining five G, on the other hand, it penetrates buildings. You know, you don't need so many of them. You put up the towers; they'll last for twenty years. You know, very right. different type of thing. You so, can make a case. Yeah, I remain dubious to be honest, but I've got to sort of speak up and say that this is one of the possible scenarios. All right. Well, we have a link to a um, report on that Morgan Stanley note if you're interested in getting a market sense. But we'll pause for a message from our sponsor, Nokia. Their digital sandbox lets you create a digital twin of your data center network so you can test and validate configurations and changes before pushing them into production. It's part of Nokia's fabric services system, this digital sandbox. It helps enable continuous integration, continuous delivery, or CICD framework for network engineers. Using the Fabric Services System software and its digital sandbox, NetOps engineers can create a continuous loop to programmatically test, validate, deploy, and monitor any changes to the network, including config changes, software updates, and more. With Fabric Services System and its digital sandbox, the network is continually monitored through telemetry. The system looks for deviations from intent to ensure that the network is always converging toward the desired state. The result is a dramatic reduction in unintended consequences from change, a more stable and predictable data center network, and a NetOps framework that helps the network team hook into DevOps practices while keeping pace with application and service deployments. You can find out more by listening to the Tech Bytes podcast we published on May 31st with Nokia, or go to nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. That's nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. All right, back to the news. Uh, Forward Network, uh, they make a network modeling software. They've added a new capability to pull in data sources via HTTP and add that data to its network model. And Forward Networks like Nokia can make a digital real-time model of your data center network by pulling in state and config data from routers and switches. And customers can use this model to test changes and verify the network is configured to meet the organization's intent. Yeah, Forward Networks is different, though, because what it does with its model is it's not looking at the same at the same way like we talked about the Nokia thing and how it's like a, a as much of a 100% copy not just the configuration and the and the interfaces and you know the BGP peering it's all the state information mac tables and forward networks does drive into that place i think the challenge here is that what they're doing is saying we'll go and pull data from netbox or we'll write data into netbox and this is a as a substantial advance on forward networks because up until now it's basically been we read the network and then do something with it our model is is a extracted but not doesn't complete the loop back if that makes sense 
Whereas this starts to move into the place where forward networks can start to integrate with third-party tools and go backwards and forwards instead of existing in isolation. So this is a useful advance for not just the network modeling, but the path, te path testing. Right. Forward uh, networks and Veriflow are both similar startups that sort of played in this space, this network modeling space. But you're right, they, were, they weren't like Appster, which could actually then make changes to the network. It was more just, mm. here's a digital copy of your network. You can test changes on it. And then you have to go to the network itself to do what you need to do. Yeah. Well, the advantage of Forward was that it works on any vendor. That's right. right? It's, it's vendor so neutral, yes. Whereas, it's vendor neutral. Like Nokia, it's all you have to be running Nokia's Linux uh, NOS to, to get the, yeah, that's the, right. the benefit. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, and I believe Forward Networks has been particularly useful for companies which have like lots of different vendors of firewalls and switches and IDSs and load balancers. Right. And Forward's able to then say, oh, yes, there's a path from here to here, or there's not a path from here to here, which in corporate networks can be a significant challenge. For sure. So, you know, is it blocked by a firewall rule? Is it blocked by an access list? Is it a routing weakness? So different, but I think the interesting part here is that the integration of third-party data isn't immediately something that forward would do, but obviously customers are expecting that. Right. All right, link in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, a U.S. federal judge has ruled that IBM must pay $1.6 billion to BMC for, quote, swapping its own software while servicing their mutual client, end quote, and that's according to a story in Bloomberg. Yeah, this is super interesting. $1.6 billion is like real money. That's serious money, um, yes. <laughs> in the sense of things. Um, basically, the backstory here is that IBM took over a cust operating a customer's infrastructure. And as part of that, they signed a contract with BMC to operate BMC software for the customer. And at some point during the life cycle of the customer, IBM moved in and started to convince the customer to switch from BMC software to IBM's. And the non-compete contract, which had been signed, had been breached. And you know this is a, a sort of conflict of interest that I see happening very often and certainly personally experienced it. You know, I would be working for in a side of a customer, for a reseller, and then the vendor would come in and say, oh, "Yeah, we want to sell more." And then suddenly, the you know the solution I was delivering would be displaced by a competitor, and basically someone got shafted somewhere along the line. And these sorts of conflict interests, uh, you know, we talk about competition a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where two companies who are actually competitors suddenly <laughs> agree to be nice to each other. <laughs> right. I mean, um, it, it sounds like a difficult relationship because it wasn't just IBM came in and said, "Hey, our product's better. You should switch." It was. IBM had signed a contract with BMC to operate BMC's equipment and not try to then undercut them by convincing the, the customer to switch to IBM, which is then what they did. And that's why they're paying this fine. Yeah. Now, of course, IBM's going to appeal this. Of course. <laughs> for $1.6 you can certainly afford the cost of an appeal, even if you lose, which I think is, is relevant. But I do think it also highlights the challenges of the reseller market and this idea of professional services of we can manage anything we can outsource stuff and it highlights and you know sometimes these things don't actually happen deliberately it's not like the executive set out to say oh, good let's just go and screw bmc right quite often things happen because the original people involved moved on and then the new people come in and the sales rep goes in he goes like why are we doing bmc here let's just get rid of this bmc and put our own stuff in and we can make more money out of this and then all <laughs> You know, <laughs> right. but after it's all been done, suddenly somebody goes, "Hang on, <laughs> we had a we had an agreement here that uh, has just been violated." Whoops. Yeah, that's right. And so, obviously, BMC has decided to pursue this quite strongly because BMC and IBM do have to work together quite closely on mainframe contracts like this. So it's very interesting. I think it just highlights the tension between resellers and vendors and customers, and just how complex that is. 
And as the as we see the market going forward, I'm not sure that I've said before, I don't think resellers survive. They do so far because vendors find them cheaper than doing it themselves or fine, you know, but I'm not sure that it's going to last forever. Well, I think we'll revisit that conversation shortly in just a couple of stories. But first, we'll talk about uh, the data center switch market. It grew, uh, data center switch sales grew 16% in the first quarter of 2022 compared to the same time last year. That's according to the Del Oro Group. The analyst firm says it's the second highest revenue ever captured uh, for the time it's been tracking this market. So we, <laughs> the challenge here is that the devil's in the detail and we don't actually get to see the full report. We're just going off the press release, which is linked in the show notes. Right. So uh, the, the the press release calls out that H3C, Arista, Juniper, and Starnet, and white box vendors captured most of the growth. So the logical extension here is that it is the cloud companies, which they went on to say in a later part of the press release, cloud service providers contributing about 70% of the year-on-year increase in sales. So that's confirmation of that. Okay. I think the most important part, and we've talked about this a lot, uh, I think was it over the last month or so, is that some vendors have been able to manage their supply chains better than others. I think it was last week we talked specifically about Cisco obviously not handling their supply chain well and being punished in their share price when the results came in very low. Um, Deloro has the same opinion here saying um, is that despite the supply issues which are impacting all components, all industries, all regions and all manufacturers, some vendors are somehow able to outperform the market. So I think this is validation of our perspective where we've said some vendors are doing it better than others and that other people are seeing the same thing. Right, that some vendors have been able to manage supply chain disruption a little bit better than their competitors, which means they're actually able to deliver more boxes than their competitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I speculated that I I know that Arista certainly has been spending money cash up front, placing pre-orders and prepayments to secure a supply chain. And I believe Juniper, I speculate that Juniper is doing the same but that Cisco did not. There's been no mention from Cisco that they've contributed several billion dollars in upfront purchasing. And I suspect that is where the gap is. Now that could be wrong. That's just speculation on my part. But you know, we know for a fact that Arista and Juniper is shipping more product than most companies. And this has contributed to some of the growth in the market. And they specialize to some extent to sharing cloud. That doesn't mean that enterprise switches are necessarily uh, shipping reliably, by the way. It just means some parts are, right? I mean, I could see Arista definitely wanting to make sure that it's delivering to its cloud customers because that's where it gets the majority of its revenue at this point. So it wants to keep them happy. Mm-hmm. And because of this, you know, the, the cloud infrastructure supports white box, it's probably relatively simple for them to swap mm-hmm. in different hardware if Arista or one of the other name brands doesn't deliver. So they've got to they hustle there. You might also find that those cloud providers are actually leaning on the supply chain as well. <laughs> you know, yes. it's not impossible that somebody like AWS or Microsoft could go down to the to the component makers and say, "You better be." You know, I don't like right. And I think also the last part here is that white box continues to grow, but it's not necessarily visible in the mass enterprise IT market. So white box vendors vendors are particularly capturing a lot of market share. Obviously, H three C. Uh, which is the old 3Com, which was sold to China, which is now out of China, uh, now a Chinese-owned company, 100% owned by a company. Probably it would be fair to say that they're getting their growth out of China uh, and the Chinese market and the Asian market specifically. But white box generally, still very successful, but just not necessarily in the mass enterprise IT market. Right, where we would see it, yeah, more specifically. Mm. All right, our final story, the Detroit Free Press newspaper says automaker Ford wants to move sales of its electric vehicles to online only, meaning no dealer markups and no dealer negotiations. You buy the car, get it delivered, and you're done. And I, Greg, I think you're sort of tying this back to it might be a model for IT in the future. 
Yeah, I think so. I think the interesting thing here is that Ford bypassing dealers is disrupting what 200 200 years of whatever. Right. You know, like they've <laughs> and the reason that dealers existed was that um, car manufacturers were not able to in the days of paper-based systems, which are simply not able to, you know, sell customer cars directly to customers. Uh, and, you know, uh, you ship the cars out, you send them to the dealer and the dealer then does something to make it relevant to the local market, which you could make the case that Tesla has certainly proven that that does not apply. So for example, Tesla notably does not sell cars via the, any car dealerships, right. except its own, but mostly it sells them directly. So arguably the car dealership model is already under threat. Does this apply to resellers? I suspect so. I think that this is a sign that as uh, as the market develops, customers could just absorb the reseller functions into themselves. If they had the skills and the talent in-house to do this, they would be able to do that. Or if the products get simpler and easier to consume. Now, keep in mind that we do already see this in the public cloud market. That is, the public cloud sells directly to the customer. There are some resellers who are adding value, but they're not required companies can go directly to the source. So I think this is just a signal that the reseller industry has had its time in the sun and we're now in the sunset phase of that particular market thing. And that's something I'll continue to go on with. Yeah, I will push back a little bit. I mean, I can see why you would say that. And I know you've been sort of banging on against resellers for a long time. You definitely have some good points, but I also think you mentioned companies having the time and the talent to run equipment themselves. A lot of them don't. Some of them just aren't interested. Some of them just can't afford Mm. it. I'm thinking, you know, school districts and so on, hospitals that that they need help. Um, And also we're seeing signals from major vendors that resellers are still important for them as a way to get products out to customers and through the channel. They want to maintain those partnerships. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of a conversation I had with Aruba where they were saying, yes, the channel is still important to us, even as we move to this sort of cloud-like model of consumption. I, yeah, I think if you look at the market the way it is today, but I think going forward, our products will look more like cars or we'll see much more of the HP GreenLake model where you buy a service and you just get what you get. So there's less and less need for integration. And as more services dissipate to SaaS or infrastructure as a service or to on-prem, you know, as we said last week, part of VMware's acquisition by Broadcom could be read as a statement that the off-prem public cloud has is the dominant technology going forward and that on-prem private clouds are over and that, and I've said before, campus networks will be replaced by just internet access wherever you are. Like why build a campus? And yes, as printers die, you won't need ethernet ports and, (laughs) you know, fax machines. And there is a, there is a transition here, but in the long term, I just don't see that there's a lot of highly customized, unique solutions in the infrastructure space that make sense. And eventually it'll all just go to direct sales. I think if we could actually move to more simplified IT products, that could be the case. But uh, so far, history has shown that uh, we tend to move toward more complexity rather than simplicity. (laughs) I would posit that solutions are much simpler now than they were five years ago. Could be in some locations, yes. But I'm thinking of NSX, ACI, others that have just been, you know, we've heard from listeners that, wow, these products are hard to roll out. But easy to operate. Well, once you get it going, maybe, yes. Yeah. But that's just still a big hurdle. <laughs> it's an interesting discussion. Maybe it's one we should do a whole show on, I guess. But uh, Maybe bring it over to Heavy Strategy and see what Jonah thinks. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps so. Time, time to test it. Test it. Yeah. Time All to right. test that thesis and see if it flies. See if it flies. 
All right, as always, links in the show notes if you want to read more. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba about its networking as a service offering. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about network as a service with sponsor Aruba, a Hewlett-Packard enterprise company, including how Aruba defines NAS, the market appetite for network as a service, customer examples, and more. Our guest is Alan Nee, Senior Director of Edge Marketing. Uh, Alan, welcome to the podcast. And you can you start us off, what does Aruba mean by network as a service? Thank you. Appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity here. Yeah. So NAS is definitely a very nascent area, an area that... Um, We've been uh, driving a lot of thought leadership around. And when we think about NAS, we specifically think about consuming um, networking or enterprise networking and the type of networking that we're in is kind of at the edge, edge networking in a subscription form in a cloud-like manner. So if you think about it more specifically, we're thinking about things like hardware or customer premise equipment in this services space combined with software lifecycle management services delivered and consumed via a subscription or uh, consumption-based form. Okay, so I want to make sure I understand this. You're talking essentially about how I'm consuming uh, hardware and software from Aruba and not like I'm buying, say, a backbone connectivity service that you're delivering to me. Correct, right? And if you think about network or networking, there could be many flavors of as a service, right? If we're a service provider, maybe you are paying for some form of connectivity um, as a service. When you and I pay for, pay our cell phone carriers, right? We're paying for some form of connectivity as a service. But with it, when it comes to our specific sort of portfolio and the types of products and solutions that we offer, um, it goes to basically what you just said. This sounds like it's related to the Hewlett Packard Enterprise GreenLake offering, where they're offering uh, the whole IT infrastructure as a service. Is it in the same vein as that, where you ship me the hardware that I need and then charge me an agreed fee for a period of time? So I can have, you know, 10 switches in a leaf spine architecture and you'll just work out how to pay me, how I pay for it on a monthly basis. Absolutely. So if you think about it, and that's a great comment. Mm. Um, several years ago, Antonio Neri, our CEO, basically threw the gauntlet down and said, hey, we're going to reinvent and rethink how IT infrastructure is actually deployed and consumed. Mm. And part of that is to take a lot of things, uh, a lot of hardware that's traditionally kind of bought, pushing boxes, deploying boxes, et cetera, and rethink that into a cloud-like sort of motion. And with HPE GreenLake for Aruba, we're taking a critical piece of that triad, right, compute storage, networking, and bringing networking, specifically kind of the edge networking piece to that cloud-like motion. Now, this applies to all of your portfolio, the wireless, the SD-WAN, and the data center, and the wired campus as well, so that I can basically come in with a with a subscription licensing or a, or a monthly or recurring license, you know, payment scheme, and I uh, sit down with your account team and work out a fee for that. That's basically how it works then? Yep. It's unique in that, as you kind of suggested, our entire portfolio is available via this subscription model. We have Mm. not just the entire portfolio, but a pretty big footprint. We have the ability to reach out to north of 50 countries across the world. So we could serve individual countries or multinationals uh, from that respect. But yes, uh, you're correct, Greg. Mm. Now, that would not just be for the uh, for the solution. It's not like a, a financing deal. This is the whole package. This is, uh, it throws in with the maintenance offering. It throws in with the software updates. It throws with the whole thing. So when you say network as a service, it's 
functionally like, here's all the assets that you want. You're going to pay this much for it. And if you want more, then you send them more and you fit, you know, you grow that. So if I'm thinking SD-WAN, if I'm a company and I've got a hundred sites and I grow to 200, you just work out ways to pay for that on an incremental basis. So more would be deployed and you'd pay a subscription fee for all that. Yes, you're right. I mean, the mindset's just very different when you're buying yeah. as a service versus I think what you were alluding to, buying and mm. financing, let's say through a lease. If I'm financing through a lease, I'm still thinking about it from an architectural perspective, right? I'm thinking mm. technology first. How do I build that specific sort of platform? What specific sort of products or software do I need? I build mm. a bill of materials. And then, yeah, I could pay it in a lump sum or potentially I could go finance it. Whereas with an as-a-service sort of model, you're thinking more from a use case perspective. The customer's mm. thinking, hey, if I'm a retailer, I actually need to provide wireless point-of-sale solutions or I need to, mm -hmm. be able to furnish guest Wi-Fi or some sort of augmented reality experience. And that's going to drive the architecting of the solution. And then as you kind of suggested, you have the ability to be able to scale up or scale down based off of the actual use case. And particularly in this day and time, if you think about the pandemic and how businesses really had to be able to change and adapt kind of on a dime. Yeah. Um, this type of solution, I think part of the reason that this type of solution um is more interesting is just because of the times, right? Whether you're talking about connectivity or if you think about what organizations had to do with their software strategy or their application strategy, you know, relying on just the client mm. in general. So, you know, one of the complaints that we hear from listeners all the time is that licensing is becoming so complicated that it essentially can be a full-time position at some organizations. If I'm getting into this uh, as a service model, am I getting more complex licensing or less complex licensing? I'd argue less. Um, if you think about it, you're paying for a subscription, right? But the underlying licensing that you need, you're thinking about use cases once again. You're not thinking about assembling products and widgets together. Right, those specific use cases and what we've done with the as a service, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this around service packs, is that we've now packaged it in a way that from a financial perspective, people want to go more OPEX based, and there's some good attributes for that. You have the ability to be able to do that. And we've abstracted you know, all the additional accessories or accoutrements you needed to mm -hmm. a network and abstracted that. So you don't have to worry about that. You could be maybe more of a, a line of business sort of person that needs a specific sort of solution and will mm. deliver it to you via that subscription-based form. You don't need to get into all of that minutiae. So you mentioned service packs. What, what does that mean then? Yeah, so this is part of our journey, right? We've had GreenLake for Aruba on the market north of two years. As we kind of came out initially with some of the deals, we had to do a lot of this stuff via scope of works, right? So yes, we could deliver it via a monthly subscription, Etc. But we had to do it via scope of works. And one of the things that we found was that that was great. It served a lot of our customers. You'll hear more about these customers. Um, there's a whole bunch that we'll be releasing over the summer uh, to talk about their experience. But it's hard to scale because you're basically building custom homes, if I had to use an analogy. And what we've learned is we've figured out there's a lot of similarity. And the goal was to really template it so that we can scale. We could scale to our mm. customers and more importantly, we can involve the channel. Uh, the channel that we have, that's where the majority of our sales go through from a network perspective, but they're still very accustomed to selling products and solutions, 
right? Specific hardware, software licensing, et cetera. Scaling scope of works is a lot more foreign to them. So this idea of service packs is to really make these NAS offerings a lot more congruent to how the channel wants to operate. If mm. sometimes we kind of dumb it down a little bit and say, hey, we can make it SKU based and the channels know how to operate and sell and push SKUs. And then with these service packs, we give them the hardware, the software, the key technology components that so that they can wrap their services around it. And one mm. of the services I noticed on one of your recent writings you guys wrote about was that um, does NAS include a third party operate portion, right? And as we need to scale, there are many increasing partners that are building these practices where they could, from a managed services perspective, operate networks. And mm. what a service packs allows us to do is give them the key technology, et cetera, from uh, in, in a simple way, in an as a service cloud like motion, and then they could wrap something like a service if it's mm. something like managed services. I, so I think it's important that people understand that part of the way that network as a service works is you have to say, this is the design and the, the customer kind of has to fit into that. And the flip side of this is that that's exactly what happens in off-premise cloud. You can only use the tools that they give you and everybody seems to fit into that okay. So if you're used to the mindset of, I'm going to have one of these and one of these and I'm going to put this together and I'm going to artisanally to create a network, that's not what we're talking about here. Network as a service says, these are the defined designs, these are the use cases, This is and, and that lets you set up consistent upgrade paths for customers and to be able to know how much you're spending. So there are some 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 restrictions here in the sense that this is how the product works but that's not that's actually a good thing i think yeah and that's a change in mindset right and mm -hmm. i sometimes put a lot of analogies to this if i want to rent a car i basically say hey i want to rent a mid-sized car or i need a minivan or something i can't mm -hmm. really pick the exact car right it's based off my use case i need to get from point a to point b this is my party this is the amount of luggage <laughs> and i yeah. leave it to a hertz or avis or whoever to figure out and make sure that they give me a quality car they can get me from point a to point b and it doesn't yeah. break down right but can i pick a mustang versus a camaro versus something that's a lot more difficult and i think this is the same sort of methodology right we understand the use case and we've been able to build and architect and design this to be able to solve for that use case. So we're driven by a service level objective. Um, it's kind of funny in our IDC, mm -hmm. we did an IDC survey just recently, a thousand IT executives across, multi, uh, I think 15 or so countries. And we did ask a question around, if you're thinking about network as a service, where do you, where do you, where do you land? Um, do you want to, do you believe you're still specking equipment like actual models or are you going to leave it to kind of the service provider? And the response was actually three quarters believe they still desire to actually pick what the equipment is where as a quarter uh, didn't, they were going to leave it to the service provider. And more recently, I actually did a, a separate webcast with one of our customers who's an early adopter, one of the earlier adopters on network as a service. And he kind of agreed with that statement. He actually said that when they first went into it, they thought they needed to spec the equipment. But then as they started to talk to their financial folks and their accountants, they had a desire to kind of consume it on an OPEX basis. Um, you know, as soon as you bring in CPAs, they basically said, hey, 
you can't be specking equipment. It need, actually <laughs> needs to be a scope of work with the desired outcome around use cases. So ultimately with this organization, when they deployed, he went to that smaller minority portion, which is, you know, he put his trust in the service provider. We were one of those service providers to say, hey, you guys know exactly what you're doing. You're going to spec what I need to ultimately, and I'm going to kind of uh, pull away from actually choosing, you know, what color paint, what model, what trim grade, et cetera. Uh, yeah. Right. What matters is getting to the destination as opposed to, am I getting there in a Toyota or a Honda? Correct. I think it's more like choosing a hire car. You say they want a big car, a small car, a minibus, and then that's right. where you go rather than, you know, buying a car where you say, I want fancy car that shows off my ego with red paint and fat wheels and a loud engine. Exactly. In that case, Maybe you're going to have hard. to buy it or you're going to lease it. Right. So if we go back to this idea of, you know, you have to buy it or lease it, and then maybe you'll get your Range Rover with the big wheels. Right. Um, yeah. So, but it also sounds like you have designed this network as a service program with the channel in mind. So the partners and managed service providers also still have a role to play. Super, super important to us. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, some of our early wins in some cases, we had to figure out how this would work. Right. And I think, from a networking perspective, particularly the specific type of networking we're doing, there are some inherent challenges that we have that other IaaS products, et cetera, don't, right? Access points are single tenant by nature. Right. If you're scaling down or not paying for it, it's a lot incredibly harder to kind of reallocate that capacity to somewhere else, right? <laughs> and I think that's one of the bigger challenges that we have versus if everything's in a colo. And I could just point that capacity elsewhere. So yeah, these are all things that we're up to the challenge for solving. But I think the flip side here is I could be running a data center network built around Aruba from HP Enterprise, right? And then all of a sudden I could say, I want an SD-WAN. I can just go back to you and say, give me the price per month for an SD-WAN. And you'd come in and say, yeah, we got this, this, and this. Here's your price. And then if you want to grow that, it's just an incremental price upgrade, a bit like the cloud. The more you use, the more you get. If you want to add more bandwidth, you can scale it up, you can scale it down. And then you can say, well, I want to start deploying a Ruber into my wired campus or un- my wireless campus. And, you know, or actually more likely you would have a Ruber Uber wireless, but you you get my point. That's that's the that's the freedom here. I think that's the uniqueness. Yeah, and that's the power of being paired up with the broader mm. HPE GreenLake story. If you think about this, if you're a shop that's kind of really bought into running more lean IT or asset light sort of facilities, the breadth of the portfolio is incredible. You could start with saying, "Hey, I I need a converged stack, right?" And that could be just basically, I need compute. I need storage, I need top of rack switching. And then all as quickly as you kind of suggested, it could evolve mm. into, oh, hey, I need kind of user connectivity or access networking, or I need inner, inner site connectivity via SD-WAN. Yeah. I think we're unique in this position from HPE to be able to deliver that critical IT stack um, across all these multiple disciplines in this as a service motion. All right. Well, that does uh, wrap up our time. Alan, if folks want to find out more uh, about uh, Aruba and Network as a Service, where would you send them? Yeah, I would hit our website, www.arubanetworks.com slash NAAS or NAS. Um, On that website, we have 
a lot of the things that we talked about, some of the thought leadership, the IDC reports that I had mentioned earlier, also a little bit more about our HPE GreenLake for Aruba offering. All right. That's arubanetworks.com slash NAAS or NAS. Uh, Alan, thanks for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers, like us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.